Section 4 of Despoilers of the Golden Empire by David Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4, Chapter 13. The heavy tread of the invaders' boots as they entered the central plaza of the walled city awakened nothing but the echoes from the stone walls that surrounded the plaza. Like the small villages they had entered farther north, the city seemed devoid of life. There is nothing quite so depressing and threatening as a deserted city. The windows in the walls of the building seemed like blank, darkened eyes that watched and waited. Nothing moved, nothing made a sound except the troopers themselves. The men kept close to the walls. There was no point in bunching up in the middle of the square to be cut down by arrows from the windows of the upper floors. The commander ordered four squads of men to search the buildings and smoke out anyone who was in there, but they turned up nothing. The entire city was empty, and there were no traps, no ambushes, nothing. The commander, with Lieutenant Commander Hernan and another officer, climbed to the top of the central building of the town. In the distance, several miles away, they could see the encampment of the monarch's troops. The only thing we can do, the commander said, his face hard and determined, is to call their bluff. You two take about three dozen men and go out there with the carriers and give them a show. Go right into camp, as if you owned a place. Throw a scare into them, but don't hurt anyone. Then, very politely, tell the emperor, or whatever he calls himself, that I would like him to come here for dinner and a little talk. The two officers looked at each other and then at the commander. Just like that? asked Hernan. Just like that, said the commander. The demonstration and exhibition went well, as far as it had gone. The native warriors had evidently been quite impressed by the onslaught of the terrifying monsters that had thundered across the plain toward them, right into the great camp, and come to a dead halt directly in front of the magnificent pavilion of the greatest noble himself. The greatest noble put up a good face. He had obviously been expecting the visitors, because he and his lesser nobles were lined up before the pavilion, the greatest noble ensconced on a sort of portable throne. He managed to look perfectly calm and somewhat bored by the whole affair, and didn't seem to be particularly affected at all when Lieutenant Commander Hernan bowed low before him and requested his presence in the city. And the greatest noble's answer was simple and to the point, although it was delivered by one of his courtiers. You may tell your commander, said the noble, that his effulgence must attend to certain religious duties tonight, since he is also high priest of the sun. However, his effulgence will most graciously deign to speak to your commander tomorrow. In the meantime, you are requested to enjoy his effulgence's gracious hospitality in the city, which has been emptied for your convenience. It is yours for the nonce which left nothing for the two officers and their men to do but go thundering back across the plain to the city. The greatest noble did not bring his whole army with him, but the pageant of barbaric splendor that came tootling and drumming its way into the city the next evening was a magnificent sight. His effulgence himself was dressed in a scarlet robe and a scarlet turban-like head covering with scarlet fringes all around it. Around his throat was a necklace of emerald green gems, and his clothing was studded with more of them. Gold gleamed everywhere. 
He was borne on an ornate, gilded palanquin, carried high above the crowd on the shoulders of a dozen stalwart nobles, only slightly less gorgeously dressed than the greatest noble. The nobility that followed was scarcely less showy in its finery. When they came into the plaza, however, the members of the procession came to a halt. The singing and music died away. The plaza was absolutely empty. No one had come out to greet the emperor. There were 6,000 natives in the plaza, and not a sign of the invaders. The commander, hiding well back in the shadows in one of the rooms of the central building, watched through the window and noted the evident consternation of the royal entourage with satisfaction. Freighter Vincent, standing beside him, whispered, Well? All right, the commander said softly. They've had a taste of what we got when we came in. I suppose they've had enough. Let's go out and act like hosts. The commander and a squad of ten men, along with Freighter Vincent, strode majestically out the door of the building and walked toward the greatest noble. They had all polished their armor until it shone, which is about all they could do in the way of finery, but they evidently looked quite impressive in the eyes of the natives. "'Greetings, your effulgence,' said the commander, giving the greatest noble a bow that was hardly five degrees from the perpendicular. "'I trust we find you well.' In the buildings surrounding the square, hardly daring to move for fear the clank of metal on metal might give the whole plan away, the remaining members of the company watched the conversation between their commander and the greatest noble. They couldn't hear what was being said, but that didn't matter. They knew what to do as soon as the commander gave the signal. Every eye was riveted on the commander's right hand. It seemed an eternity before the commander casually reached up to his helmet and brushed a hand across it, once, twice, three times. Then all hell broke loose. The air was split by the sound of power weapons throwing their lances of flames into the massed ranks of the native warriors. The gunners, safe behind the walls of the buildings, poured a steady stream of accurately directed fire into the packed mob, while the rest of the men charged in with their blades, thrusting and slashing as they went. The aliens, panic-stricken by the sudden, terrifying assault, tried to run, but there was nowhere to run to. Every exit had been cut off to bottle up the imperial cortege. Within minutes, the entrances to the square were choked with the bodies of those who tried to flee. As soon as the firing began, the commander and his men began to make their way toward the greatest noble. They had been forced to stand a good five yards away during the parley, cut off from direct contact by the imperial guards. The commander, sword in hand, began cutting his way through to the palanquin. The palanquin bearers seemed frozen. They couldn't run, they couldn't fight, and they didn't dare drop their precious cargo. The commander's voice bellowed out over the carnage. Take him prisoner. I'll personally strangle the idiot who harms him. And then he was too busy to yell. Two members of the greatest noble's personal guard came for him, swords out, determined to give their lives, if necessary, to preserve the sacred life of their monarch, and give them they did. The commander's blade lashed out once, sliding between the ribs of the first guard. He toppled and almost took the sword with him, but the commander wrenched it free in time to parry the downward slash of the second guard's bronze sword. It was a narrow thing, because the bronze sword, though softer stuff than the commander's steel, was also heavier and thus hard to deflect. As it sang past him, the commander swung a chop at the man's neck, cutting it halfway through. He stepped quickly to one side to avoid the falling body, 
and thrust his blade through a third man who was aiming a blow at the neck of one of the commander's officers there were only a dozen feet separating the commander from his objective the palanquin of the greatest noble but he had to wade through blood to get there the palanquin itself was no longer steady three of the twelve nobles who had been holding it had already fallen and there were two of the commander's men already close enough to touch the royal person but they were too busy fighting to make any attempt to grab him the greatest noble unarmed could only huddle in his seat terrified but it would take more than two men to snatch him from his bodyguard the commander fought his way in closer two more of the palanquin bearers went down and the palanquin itself began to topple the greatest noble screamed as he fell toward the commander one of the commander's men spun around as he heard the scream so close to him and thinking that the greatest noble was attacking his commander lunged out with a blade it was almost a disaster moving quickly the commander threw out his left arm to deflect the sword he succeeded but he got a bad slash across his hand for his trouble he yelled angrily at the surprised soldier not caring what he said meanwhile the others of the squad seeing that the great noble had fallen hurried to surround him two minutes later the greatest noble was a prisoner being half carried half led into the central building by four of the men while the remaining six fought a rearguard action to hold off the native warriors who were trying to rescue the sacred person of the child of the sun once inside the greatest noble was held fast while the doors were swung shut outside the slaughter went on all the resistance seemed to go out of the warriors when they saw their sacred monarch dragged away by the invading earthmen it was every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost and the devil in the form of the commander's troops certainly did within half an hour after it had begun the butchery was over more than three thousand of the natives had died and an unknown number more badly wounded those who had managed to get out and get away from the city kept on going they told the troops who had been left outside what had happened, and a mass exodus from the valley began. Safely within the fortifications of the central building, the commander allowed himself one of his rare grins of satisfaction. Not a single one of his own men had been killed, and the only wound which had been sustained by anyone in the company was the cut on his own hand. Still smiling, he went into the room where the greatest noble, dazed and shaken, was being held by two of the commander's men the commander bowed this time very low i believe your effulgence that we have an appointment for dinner come the banquet has been laid and as though he were still playing the gracious host the commander led the half-paralyzed child of the sun to a room where the banquet had been put on a table in perfect diplomatic array your effulgence may sit at my right hand said the commander pleasantly Chapter 14. As MacDonald said of Robert Wilson, this is not an account of how boosterism came to Arcadia. It's a devil of a long way from it, and once the high point of a story has been reached and passed, it is pointless to prolong it too much. The capture of the greatest noble broke the power of the empire of the greatest noble forever. The loyal subjects were helpless without the leader, and the disloyal ones near the periphery of the empire didn't care. The crack imperial troops simply folded up and went home. The greatest noble went on issuing orders, and they were obeyed, 
the people were too used to taking orders from authority to care whether they were really the greatest noble's own idea or not in a matter of months two hundred men had conquered an empire with a loss of thirty-five or forty men eventually they had to execute the old greatest noble and put his more tractable nephew on the throne but that was a mere incident gold it flowed as though there were an endless supply the commander shipped enough back on the first load to make them all wealthy the commander didn't go back home to spend his wealth amid the luxuries of the imperial court even though emperor karl appointed him to the nobility that sort of thing wasn't the commander's meat there he would be a fourth-class noble here he was the imperial viceroy responsible only to the distant emperor there he would be nothing here he was almost a king two years after the capture of the greatest noble he established a new capital on the coast and named it kingston and from kingston he ruled with an iron hand as has been intimated this was not arcadia a year after the founding of kingston the old capital was attacked burned and almost fell under siege due to a sudden uprising of the natives under the new greatest noble who had managed to escape but the uprising collapsed because of the approach of the planting season the warriors had to go back home and plant their crops or the whole of the agricultural based country would starve except the invading earthmen except in a few instances the natives were never any trouble again but the commander now the viceroy had not seen the end of his troubles he had known his limitations and realized that governing of a whole planet or even one continent was too much for one man when the population consists primarily of barbarians and savages so he had delegated the rule of a vast area to the south to another a lieutenant commander james known as one eye a man who had helped finance the original expedition and had arrived after the conquest one eye went south and made a very small headway against the more barbaric tribes there he did not become rich and he did not achieve anywhere near the success that the viceroy had so he came back north with his army and decided to unseat the viceroy and take his place that was five years after the capture of the greatest noble one eye took center city the old capital and started to work his way northward toward kingston the viceroy's forces met him at a place known as salt flats and thoroughly trounced him he was captured tried for high treason and executed one would think that the execution ended the threat of lieutenant commander james but not so he had a son and he had had followers chapter fifteen nine years nine years since the breaking of a vast empire it really didn't seem like it the viceroy looked at his hands they were veined and thin and the calluses were gone was he getting soft or just getting old a little bit no a great deal of both he sat in his study in the viceregal palace at kingston chewing over the events of the past weeks twice rumors had come that he was to be assassinated he and two of his counselors had been hanged in effigy in the public square not long back he had been snubbed publicly by some of the lesser nobles had he ruled harshly or was it jealousy and was it really as some said caused by the southerners and the followers of young jim 
He didn't know, and sometimes it seemed as if it didn't matter. Here he was, sitting alone in his study when he should have gone to a public function, and he had stayed because of fear of assassination. Was it? There was a knock at the door. Come in. A servant entered. Sir Martin is here, my lord. The viceroy got to his feet. Show him in, by all means. Sir Martin, just behind the servant, stepped in, smiling, and the viceroy returned his smile. Well, everything went off well enough without you, said Sir Martin. Any sign of trouble? None, my lord, none whatsoever. The damn, the viceroy interrupted savagely. I should have known. What have I done but display my cowardice? I'm getting yellow in my old age. Sir Martin shook his head. Cowardice, my lord? Nothing of the sort. Prudence, I should call it. By the by, the judge and a few others are coming over. He chuckled softly. We thought we might talk you out of a meal. The viceroy grinned widely. Nothing easier. I suspected all you hangers-on would come around for your handouts. Come along, my friend. We'll have a drink before the others get here. There were nearly twenty people at dinner, all presumably friends of the viceroy. At least, it is certain that they were friends insofar as they had no part in the assassination plot. It was a gay party. The viceroy's friends were doing their best to cheer him up, and were succeeding pretty well. One of the nobles, known for his wit, had just essayed a somewhat off-colored jest, and the others were roaring with laughter at the punchline when a shout rang out. There was a sudden silence around the table. What was that? asked someone. What did? Help! There was a the sound of footsteps pounding up the stairway from the lower floor. Help! The southerners have come to kill the viceroy. From the sounds, there was no doubt in any of the minds of the people seated around the table that the shout was true. For a moment, there was shock. Then panic took over. There were only a dozen or so men in the attacking party. If the friends of the viceroy had stuck by him, they could have held off the assassins with ease. But no one ran to lock the doors that stood between the viceroy and his enemies, and only a few drew their weapons to defend him. The others fled. Getting out of a window from the second floor of a building isn't easy, but fear can lend wings, and although none of them actually flew down, the retreat went fast enough. Characteristically, the viceroy headed not for the window, but for his own room, where his armor, long unused except for state functions, hung waiting in the closet. With him went Sir Martin. But there wasn't even an opportunity to get into the armor. The rebel band charged into the hallway that led to the bedroom, screaming, Death to the tyrant! Long live the emperor! It was personal anger then, not rebellion against the empire, which had appointed the ex-commander to his post as viceroy. Where is the viceroy? Death to the tyrant! The assassins moved in. Swords in hand and cloaks wrapped around their left arms, Sir Martin and the viceroy moved to meet the oncoming attackers. Traitors, bellowed the viceroy. Cowards, have you come to kill me in my own house? Parry and thrust, parry, thrust. Two of the attackers fell before the snake-tongued blade of the fighting viceroy. Sir Martin accounted for two more before he fell in a flood of his own blood. The viceroy was alone now. His blade flickered as though inspired, and two more died under its tireless onslaught. Even more would have died if the head of the conspiracy, a supporter of a young Jim named Radda, hadn't pulled a trick that not even the viceroy would have pulled. Radda grabbed one of his own men and shoved him toward the viceroy's sword, impaling the helpless man upon that deadly blade. 
and in the moment while the viceroy's weapon was buried to the hilt in an enemy's body the others leaped around the dying man and ran their blades through the viceroy he dropped to the floor blood gushing from half a dozen wounds even so his fighting heart still had seconds more to beat as he propped himself up on one arm the assassin stood back even they recognized that they had killed something bigger and stronger than they a better man than any of them lay dying at their feet he clawed with one hand at the river of red that flowed from his pierced throat and then fell forward across the stone floor with his crimson hand he traced the great symbol of his faith on the stone the sign of the cross he bent his head to kiss it and with a final cry of jesus he died at the age of seventy it had taken a dozen men to kill him with treachery something all the hell of nine years of conquest and rule had been unable to do and thus died francisco pizarro the conqueror of peru the end